1: It's Rico Daily. I'm Adam Clark Estes. And this year, we've spent a lot of time thinking about and talking about work, remote work, automated work, the future of work, how the pandemic has changed work. And today, with the help of our friends at Vox Conversations, we're going to try and answer a big question. Do we need a new conception of work I'm Sean Illing, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. It's hard to track all the ways this pandemic has upended normal life, but surely one of the most significant changes has been how and where, and even when we work. You might call the last year or so a remote work revolution. But that's not quite right. For one thing, remote work wasn't an option for most of the country because they work in the retail or service industries. But even for the fortunate people who were able to work from home, what they were doing wasn't really working from home. It was instead what authors Charlie Warzel and Anne Helen Peterson call a panicked compromise made under the stress of a national crisis. And it wasn't great for workers or employers. Everyone was just surviving. But as we inch our way towards the other side of this pandemic, or at least the closest we'll ever get to the other side of it, we have an opportunity to rethink our broken relationship to work. The pandemic was an inflection point, and what happens or doesn't happen next is really up to us. This is the case Peterson and Warzel make in their new book called Out of Office. And it's the best thing I've read so far on this topic because it's not fundamentally about remote work. It's about work, what it's meant, what it could mean, and why the status quo isn't sustainable for anyone. In this episode, part of a Vox series on the future of work, I talked to Anne and Charlie about the world they hope we build, a world in which our jobs don't trump everything else in our lives, where we think differently about our own labor and the ways we advocate for others. And where, in their words, we don't work from home because work is what matters most. We work from home to free ourselves, to focus on what actually does. And Helen Peterson and Charlie Warzel, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Us. Thank you so much uh, for having
1: us. Well, you two used to be my favorite Montana power couple, but I just learned that you've since departed to the West Coast, so we're going to adjust...
0: Well, you make that sound like we like moved like to Seattle, which we live in an even more <laughs> rural place now. Like We live on an island with less than 1,000 people, and there's only a ferry to get to from one place to the other. So it's not as big of a change as one might think.
1: Okay. But you two did live and work in New York City for a while, something like a decade. And then you packed up and you moved to Montana, I'm not sure how many years ago, but a, a little bit ahead of the curve on some of the remote working stuff. And you worked there, I guess, for however long you did until you moved again recently. How did that move, the decision to leave NY and why and hightail it to Montana come about? And how has that worked out for you too?
2: Yeah. So we moved in, we moved in 2017. The reason why, so Annie's originally from Idaho and this was right after Trump's inauguration and that first sort of couple months of the Trump presidency and the aftermath of the 2016 election and newsrooms had this idea that like, oh, like we're really out of touch, right? Like like <laughs> we kind of like blew the 2016 election thing. And like, we should probably not have people only located in like three different cities in the United States. And we kind of took advantage of that. Annie was writing a lot of pieces, a lot of features about places in the Mountain West. And we kind of really used that insecurity that a lot of newsrooms had to say like, hey, what if we just kind of relocated and had some people in a different part of the country, you know, different lived experiences. But, you know, I think at least for me, it was it was kind of an adventure. And I was getting a little tired in New York City and wanted something new. And and so we did it. And I don't think either of us really thought about it in terms of like, this is going to be an experiment in working remotely. Uh, but for me, I'd never worked remotely. And it was honestly, a disaster for the first like two months, it, like an unmitigated disaster for me as a person.
1: Well, and I always thought of you even before we, we spoke as just an incredibly prolific, right? I don't know how you produce as much content as you produce, but I'm guessing that maybe the transition to remote work was a little more seamless for you. You just kind of kept your head down and did what you always did, which is just right, 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 right.
0: Well, the problem was is that I trained myself to work all the time when I was an academic, and academics just have this understanding of when work should take place, which is everywhere and anywhere and all the time. <laughs> and so when I transferred into journalism, like I just poured it along those habits, which are bad habits, to be clear, and habits that I have spent like the last five years trying to unlearn. So for me, it was not a big transition because I had been an academic for so long. I, actually really enjoyed being able to have more control over my time, which I had lost when at BuzzFeed, there was at the time a little bit of a, a premium on you should be in the office. Like you should be showing your face in the office from you know New York hours of 10 to 6 PM. And that was frustrating to me because I was like, well, I write just as well at home. Like, why do I need to come into the office every day for just like showing face? But as Charlie pointed out, like <laughs> having flexible work, like facilitated some of my worst habits. And when we moved to Montana, instead of like reveling in the amazing outdoors and hiking trails right out our front door, like all the things that we thought that we would have more opportunity to experience, we just worked all the time.
2: Yeah. There was a real, like, I felt like, Oh wow, this is such a privilege. Like I get to live in an interesting place in this beautiful place and my company's letting me do it. This is clearly like not standard. This is a perk that's being granted to me. I need to work extremely hard to justify the perk and show that like I've earned it and can be trusted with it. And by doing so, erased all of the benefits of said perk. And, you know, it was just like it was totally self-defeating for that first couple months.
1: That's probably a good segue into this book that you two have written together. And you know, let's just start here. I mean, how would you, both of you, describe what's happening right now with our whole relationship to work? I mean, is this actually a revolution or just a transitory shakeup to the status quo because of a, you know, once in a generation pandemic?
0: Wow. I mean, great question. You know, the one thing we've been telling people about our book and about remote work or flexible work, like it's much less about, where we're working, and much more about how we're working. So I think that the paradigm shifts that have accompanied the pandemic have offered this opportunity to reconsider a lot of the practices that have been considered the status quo, like something like being able to work remotely. So many companies could not conceive of a way that the work that they do could be done by people not in the office until they were forced to do it. And so instead of thinking of this as like, Oh, like, how do we figure out how to Zoom better? You know, I don't know. like the very surface level things are less interesting to me than the opportunity for companies and organizations to look at their entire way of thinking about work. And for us as employees to think about the way that we work and to come up with better solutions in terms of like how we conceive of the placement of work in our lives.
2: I think, too, that this wouldn't have happened in this exact way had there not been this pandemic, right? But I think the pandemic was this, I mean, obviously it was a traumatic and crazy reset moment for a lot of things, but what I think it really did was give people some actual bargaining power or some actual leverage because as Annie mentioned, this was the excuse for a very long time, right? Like you're not gonna be productive if you're not in the office, you know? Like we don't trust you to work, like everything's gonna fall apart without this central location. And essentially what everyone figured out is that that was a bullshit excuse. So I think there's actually a lot of people, too, that are mad about that and are like, well, if that is a bullshit excuse, what else is a bullshit excuse? Like, what else are we just doing out of, you know, habit, tradition or because the bosses say so that is actually, you know hurting us and hurting our lives and making everything more difficult. So I think that that like cracking that open and giving people, you know, that again, sort of like leverage in their jobs is what's kind of created this moment. And that is what we, you know, are most interested in exploring is that notion that anything is possible right now.
1: Well, as you say in the book, we all kind of knew most of this already, at least intuitively, but the pandemic was one of those events that exploded normal and forced a collision with the obvious or made it impossible to pretend to not see what we could always see. I mean, even this whole idea of work that we were just kind of handed down this immutable thing, a thing you go to a place to do from Monday through Friday between the hours of nine to five, where did that even come from? Is that just kind of a post-industrial society construct?
0: Yeah. I mean, this is the thing is that the hours that we work in a week have always been in flux right? Like agrarian societies, often there were these periods where you would work really long hours. And then during the winter, there would be some things that you had to do, but you would work much shorter hours, in part because you worked during daylight hours, like the industrial revolution, there was uh, expectations of working all of the time and labor reforms like really fought for even Sunday. And our understanding of like, when we should work and how long is a normal workday, like this is always changing. And so I think it's very natural that we are once again considering when we should work, how many hours are necessary to do good work. You know, all of these things, they're not static. They are open for debate.
2: My favorite piece of research for the book was this like, basically the very beginnings of the industrial era and, and kind of even before in England. and this, Like everyone was just, you know, doing their own kind of farming and these, you know, very early like companies were trying to get people to like work in rudimentary manufacturing and the people were just like absolutely not like you want me to like come in multiple days a week and so they were like i don't know what we're going to do to get people on board here I think we have to start making work more like a prison. And they just sort of like took things from, you know, the model of incarceration. <laughs> right, and we're right. like, well, if we just keep them there Why for not? nine hours and have, you know, people with whips, like that'll work. <laughs> but like, we're not programmed to want to necessarily labor most of our days. And in fact, it had to sort of legitimately be like beaten
1: into us. Maybe there's not a good answer to this. And I'm not sure if I'm an outlier here, but I never found... The office, any office, all that useful. I never got as much done there. I always found it more distracting than anything else. And you say in the book that offices have always elevated the feeling of productivity over being productive. And the thing I kept asking myself was, how is something so obvious now seem to many like a revelation? I mean, there are so many corporations that have been paying so many people for so long to find new ways to squeeze more productivity out of workers. How in the hell did companies not see this Years ago in Pivot, why did it take a freaking pandemic for us to get here?
0: Oh, I think it's all about power because I think even the people who are trying to squeeze those hours of productivity out of workers, they still have egos. And the way that managers and executives understand working and understand like the mechanism or the, or the visibility of work is by being in an office. Right By doing those sorts of chit-chatting in the hallway, like all of the stuff that people are like, it's an essential part of the office. And it's like, no, this is an essential part of how this layer of management has come to understand how work works. And so I think even if you give executives all of the data about the increased productivity and what cutting office space from your bottom line would do in terms of profits, they're still like, but how would I know that my workers are working, which is another way of saying, how will my workers know that I am the boss?
1: Yeah. That I'm watching. Yes. Yeah. Well, you both did a ton of reporting for this. I'm curious. You talked to a lot of workers. You, you talked to people on the employer side. What did you hear most from workers um, about this last year or two? They drained, confused, excited about the potential of what's happening or or what?
2: I mean, it's difficult. Something we tried to lay out in the very beginning of the book, and both of us have written about this sort of separately in our newsletters. I wrote about it for the Times at one point before we'd even conceived of the book. Is this idea that like the pandemic remote work is being conflated a lot with just remote work in general and flexible work in general. And that is what we've been through for the last 18 months, and but especially during, you know, 2020 and sort of pre-vaccine. That's not really remote work, right? That's like laboring in confinement under duress, or some people have said it's, you know, you're basically living at work. You know, you're like homeschooling your children, you're hiding from a deadly virus. So, you know, when we talk to people from that end of things, they're incredibly burned out, incredibly tired and frustrated and, you know, stuck with these wall-to-wall Zoom meetings and like performing productivity now from the home in the same way they had to in the office, except there's no, you know, like time when you get to clock out. And and so that's not the promise part of the flexible work ideal and hope. So that's one kind of change. But I think when we talk to workers now and, and then when we were reporting the book, the biggest thing is just the complete and total burnout and frustration and feeling that the way that we work is untenable. Like it's been so for a long time, but like the chickens have really come home to roost during this pandemic period. And I think that what's really interesting is you're seeing it across like not just knowledge work, but obviously in like the service sector, in healthcare and all sorts of different regions. So it's a broad spectrum of careers and jobs, but you're also seeing it across age ranges. And one of the more interesting places, I think, where we're seeing this in general is with the youngest people who are entering the workforce, who are kind of looking at their parents or looking at the dismal way that millennials have had to enter the workforce and see sort of their lifetime earning potential not be the same as the boomers, et cetera. And they're asking very fundamental questions about like careers and whether that's a good deal. That structure of, you know, you work 40 years and then you get to 10, 15 years at the end of your life to do the things you wanted to do. And I think that there's this whole kind of renegotiation and it's all born out of this idea that like the way that we're doing things right now is not tenable and it's not really desirable.
1: And I'll put this one to you. And I mean, what did you hear from the employer side? Is it a lot of resistance, a lot of wariness? I mean, as always, as I think you just alluded to, I assume the instinct on that end is to make sure no matter what, that the power dynamic doesn't tilt back too much towards the employees here? Yeah,
0: it's a tough one. I think that tech companies in particular have been very open to continually rethinking what this is going to look like. For better or for worse, they are on the vanguard here and were on the vanguard even before the pandemic. Um, If you even look just in the past 10, 15 years, like trends that start at tech companies filter down into the work world at large. And so I think what we're seeing in terms of policy from tech companies in terms of flexibility broadly being able to live remotely long term these are perks that are going to become more standardized over the years to come but then i feel like i just hear a lot of resistance right companies that are like but how are we going to make this work and confusion how are we going to have an office space and keep paying for an office space if people don't want to use it Or if they want to use it only intermittently, how are we going to come up with policies that are equitable when it comes to people who want to be in the office every day and people who never want to be in the office? Or when it comes to onboarding people who want to live somewhere else? And I think this is kind of a combination of these two questions, but I see a lot of companies asking their employees for feedback on what they want it to look like moving forward and then not listening to the feedback. (laughs) And that creates a really big dissonance and disconnect between the employees and their employers if they're asking for feedback and then not responding to that feedback
1: yeah a lot of what we're talking about here certainly on the worker side is this phrase work-life balance i I use it all the time i I kind of hate it because i don't really know what it means but i still use it uh, and so do other people and i'm not sure they know what it means either but obviously there is something to this question of how to separate work from life or how to prevent our job from devouring everything else in our lives. I mean, I'm curious how you two think about this. I guess it's fair to say we've done a very bad job in this country of imposing boundaries around work and life. but I don't know if you look around the world and you need to see better or comparatively better models of work, life balance or something that we could you know learn from or, or emulate here.
2: Well, I'll let Annie talk a little bit about the boundaries thing because she kind of came up with a really great framework for this. The one thing I'll say is that like, yes, like a lot of the erosion of any work-life balance is, (laughs) it's so thoroughly embedded in American culture that we, it's not just that like we have a hard time maintaining it or we don't do a particularly good job of educating people about it. It's that like we value and celebrate the opposite of it. We value and celebrate the complete destruction of it. And people subsuming that, like people set expectations about like, you know, when to work and how much to work and when to be in touch. And if you violate those standards... Or those expectations, it's not seen as something to, you know, have a conversation with your boss about and say, like, hey, you know, you're really not sticking to the plan here. It's celebrated. And it's like, well, why can't you be a little more like so-and-so, right? Like they work on Sundays, even though the expectation is, you know, you're not in the office, you're not working those days. Yeah. But Annie has this great framework about
0: boundaries and guardrails. Well, first of all, I'd say that I've been thinking a lot about how the American work ethic is a fetishism of work, like the process of work and not of the worker, right? The worker is kind of collateral damage in that understanding. And within that framework, within that understanding, like the only way to shift it, it can't be contingent upon the individual to try to change that, right? Like an individual cannot protect themselves from this larger ideological force, which is that better work is always more work. And so the thing that I've thought a lot about is that instead of using this language of boundaries, right, because boundaries are the responsibility of the individual, they are always violated. And when they are violated, it is your fault as an individual for not maintaining them. Instead, we could think of guardrails, which like mountain pass out here in the West where we live, like you have these guardrails on the mountain passes, which are maintained by the government by a larger entity. And they are there to protect everyone, right? We all pay into them through taxes to protect everyone. And I'm not saying that a federally mandated uh, work hours or understanding of what good work has to look like, like that does not necessarily have to be the solution. We talk about in the book, there's some interesting case studies in other countries where they have attempted to mandate like no email after certain work hours and that sort of thing. And they failed because they haven't been Robust enough to grapple with the realities of global capitalism, right? Like, if you say in France you cannot email after five PM, there will be corporations, global corporations, that are always figuring out exceptions to this. Like, people just violate it. So, at least for the time being, until labor legislation catches up to the current reality of work, which I think is a major and an important goal moving forward companies, if they do say that they want to value work-life balance or say that they want their workers to not burn out, right, to be sustainable, they have to maintain standards of what good work looks like, these guardrails. And so that looks like in our company, we do not correspond (laughs) after 8 p.m. If you are a person who really does good work at night, like, and that's how you have arranged your flexible work schedule, great. But you do not send that email, right? You delay send, which is not a hard thing. You delay send that message, that email, whatever it is, until the morning, until standard working hours. And most importantly, if you violate that standard, that guardrail, it becomes something that is actually a problem, not a low-key way to garner praise.
1: We do have a vision of work in this country as the primary source of identity and status. And as you put in the book, the primary organizing factor in our lives. And you argue that that we have to overturn that. But what does work look like or what does work mean once it's been decentered in the way you two think it should be?
2: So there's, there's this really interesting company. It's called Gumroad. And it's a platform for creators, essentially. It's a software platform thing. And they (laughs) went through this whole reorganization and had to change the way that their company works. And now they don't have any employees except for the founder. Everyone's a contractor. And what's very fascinating is the ethos of the company is like you – don't owe us anything but the work. You come in and you do this thing, like we are not gonna be friends, we're not gonna talk. It's extremely transactional. Like in a way that's almost like kind of cold and you know, in that kind of like calculated tech uh, way. And it's not like, I'm not saying this is a sustainable model for pretty much anyone or the way the company should be run. But what's so refreshing about it is this idea of being transactional with your company. Like you do a job for us, we give you money or some kinds of benefits and we get, you know, the labor that we paid for in return. There's not going to be any of this like extraneous kind of guilt or commitment or whatever. And I think that it's it's too extreme, but there's something about the transactional nature of that that is really refreshing and very helpful. And I think far less toxic than the we are a family ethos, right? Because families, as, as we all know, are, have their own problems and have their own toxic, you know, relationships that develop. And, and again, things like guilt. And I think that the way that, that we work has sort of adapted and had a lot of that kind of stuff glommed onto it. And so I think that a decentered working relationship is not completely cold and there can be some personal relationship qualities to it. But at the end of the day, what it is is it's a transaction. You are doing a job for some people and you know the transaction comes to an end at some point and you've fulfilled what you need to do for that amount of time. So I think a decentered environment means that we're not telling people that they have to labor in this job and also get all of their you know social interactions out of their job, that you don't have to be friends with everyone in your company. And it really demarcates your life outside of, work from your life inside it. And that allows you then, once you have sort of more of a clear boundary and clear expectations, you can devote more time to what's outside of it. And you can have a clearer sense of who you are, what you value when you're not this person.
0: Well, and I'll just say too, that like the greatest trick that offices ever pulled was convincing office workers that they're not workers, right? That they aren't labor. And instead, that they're like doing what they love or following a vocation, right? A calling. And thus, that exploitation is not something to be worried about, right? Or to fight back against or to understand as unacceptable. I think there are so many conditions that office workers, and I will say nonprofit workers in particular, have come to find acceptable because they do not think of themselves as labor, right? And one hope that I I, like moving forward is that I think office workers should think of ourselves as labor, right? We should think of ourselves in solidarity with so many other types of labor as well, because it's good for other laborers who don't have the privileges of remote work or of, you know, being able to labor at the same salaries, but it's also good for preventing our own exploitation.
1: Yeah. You know, and a lot of this raises the question of what, what will kind of rise up to, Fill the void in a kind of world in which work has been decentered, and you have a whole chapter in the book. It's um, a whole
0: like big chunk, yeah,
1: on community, <laughs> um, and namely the absence of it, right? And I guess you know, for me, it's it's very hard to imagine a world in which professional identity isn't the main identity if we don't have sources of connection and meaning and solidarity in our communities. And I guess that's a long way of saying it feels like the only natural ground for identity. In a hyper individualistic society like ours, is work, and I don't know how to change that, and I don't know if it's changeable.
2: I don't know. I mean, I I think the thing that we always kind of guard against this book is you know being too like pie in the sky and like understanding that a lot of these things are super entrenched in our culture, but it becomes a self defeating mindset when you say you know well you know this is how we are. I do think there's a huge power in Pulling people away for a second from the way that they did things and the realization that comes of that. So, like, using ourselves as an example, using myself as an example, I knew that I worked too much when I lived in New York and was working for BuzzFeed. Like, I knew that work was the central motivating, it was the axis in which most of my life completely revolved around. But when I left, when we left and moved to Montana, a month or two in, it became incredibly clear to me just how dominating that was you know the fact that like I had actually pushed a lot of my relationships out to make room for my work relationships and then extending those after hours like the people who I worked with I mean (laughs) it's no coincidence like Annie and I met at work Uh, but like our entire lives revolved around that like we went out at almost every other night with people and like were we talking about work sort of yes no but like those are you know kind of technically like billable hours right and i didn't realize how one dimensional my life had become i basically stopped doing things like hobbies i certainly didn't interact with my community like work took up everything and then once i was removed from that situation for a little bit it seemed almost ridiculous it was like how did i not realize this was happening and I'm not gonna say that like I'm some community organization like paragon, like I, I still need to work on a lot of this stuff, but the clarity that you get from extricating yourself from that situation, from just trying to decenter work a little bit, I think is is super powerful. And I think that certain people have found that over this period of time. And the community element, I think, too, is becomes so refreshing. It is so great to interact with things, to give your time and your energy and your focus to something that is generative in a way that work isn't. It fills a different need for people. And I think that that needs not currently being met. And it's wonderful when you do begin to start meeting it.
0: I would say that most adults that I know that are about my age, so mid to late 30s, early 40s, find it really, really hard to conceive of taking regular time for anything in their life that isn't their job or parenting. Even carving out an hour a day or an hour a week for something like a hobby or even more importantly, a commitment to something that is not related to your kid, right? So like not soccer practice, but like volunteering at any sort of organization that again is not related to parenting. It just feels inconceivable. Yeah. And I think that we should look at that very seriously, right, and think about the fact that, like, how, if the only things that we say are valuable in our lives through our actions, right, through the time allocated are our jobs and our immediate families, we are not investing in our communities. We don't value the people around us. And you see that reflected in voting choices. Like, this is not an ideology without consequences, but my hope is this is also we have gone through cycles. Like there is very good scholarship on this sort of ricocheting back between an individualist ethos and a collectivist ethos, even in the United States, which is so individualistic. Like there was a peak of collectivist activity ideology first in the the late 1800s and early 1900s, and then it declined a bit, and then it went back up, leading into World War II and in the post-war period. And it wasn't just like, oh, yeah, let's like rally together around the war. It was we want to be parts of things. We want to hang out with other people. And some of that affinity and and joining was to things like the Klan, right, which are obviously not good sorts of community involvement. But then a lot of it, too, was just civic organizations broadly, you know, volunteer organizations, things like the Elks Club, like, Being parts of churches, like whatever you think about religious organizations or religious being religious in your own life, like it allowed people to connect with people who weren't their own immediate families or the people that they worked with.
2: It's made me think a little too about our community involvement now and how tethered it is to work. Like a lot of people's only volunteering happens because like JP Morgan has a let's go do Habitat for Humanity Day. Or, you know, a lot of people only do service when they're in school in order to earn hours so that, you know, it can like look good on a college transcript or something like that. It's all attached to this kind of individualist achievement or being good at your job or checking this box. And it creates this attitude of service and community involvement to benefit just you. And it's, you know, I think Annie's right. There's just... This is not without consequence. We see it reflected in our politics. We see it reflected in our culture in a really big way. And like, will working from home change that? No. But will decentering work in our lives potentially change that? Maybe. It's certainly worth exploring, I think.
1: Maybe one of the silver linings of the pandemic is that it really did remind us how much life alone, really, truly alone sucks. And... (laughs) I guess speaking of being alone, I I, I was glad to see you write about worker solidarity in this book. And, you know, one obvious worry that I have, that a lot of people have, I'm sure, is that in a world of remote work, a world where workers are more separated and cut off, might create even more barriers to labor organization. And, And I'm curious if there are templates or models for organizing in a world where remote work is more the norm?
2: There's some. I mean, all of this stuff is relatively new. You know, again, some of the organizing we've seen in some of the tech companies like Google are templates to some degree for that. You know, there's a danger to it obviously. Like in-person organization work and sort of, you know, recruiting into that allows you to have sort of, you know, conversations that aren't totally documented or, you know, they can't be immediately scooped up by management. Those things are obviously super helpful. And if there's no gathering place, et cetera, that that can be hard. But at the same time, part of the reason why we're able to work from anywhere is due to a lot of technological advancements. And a lot of those technological advancements also give people a megaphone and the ability to easily create widely shareable content to be loud and in people's faces. So I think that, you know, you've seen a lot of labor movements recently, leveraging those tools to put a lot of pressure on people on management. And I think that that is generally good. And also, you know, like, A lot of these technological tools are great for gathering a bunch of people in a room or in an app somewhere. So there's always going to be this push and pull between like surveillance and the ability to like organize. But it's very new.
0: I'll also say that I think sometimes we get bogged down in these like very particulars of like, oh, it's going to be harder because we don't have as strong of ties with individuals. When the the real barrier to organizing is anti-labor legislation, right? Like, it is the actual policy that is in place. And more importantly, something that you hear labor advocates talk about a lot, the current labor laws have not been updated in any meaningful way to address the fissuring of the economy, like the way that most people work today, the way that work seeps into corners of our lives, but also just like the freelancification of work as well. So those, I think, are the much larger goals that we need to be talking about and advocating for instead of being more concerned about like, oh, if I'm not like going to lunch in person every day with the person next to me, it's going to be harder to unionize. It's going to be harder to unionize when it's so easy to union bust, right? Like that's the larger conversation. Right,
1: And it does seem like employees have more and more leverage since they have more choices and it employers will suffer if they don't accommodate remote work because their competitors will. But is that really true, though? Does the labor force have the kind of leverage it at least appears to have? I worry a little bit about inertia, but I also don't know how long uh, that can last if resisting it is just such obviously bad business.
0: So there's interesting data that I saw about who is actually quitting, like where the numbers are coming from, from the great resignation. And it's much more people in Service work, retail work, people working in healthcare, that sort of thing. That doesn't mean that it's not happening in office work, but I think, like, when we think just in terms of bulk, it's really happening in these jobs that demand in person interactions and that have become very hostile. Like, people are just leaving those professions. At the same time, I do know that a lot of people <laughs> have been quitting jobs that have become unsustainable to them, people in office work. Right. Or they just feel like the relationship with their employer has become so toxic that essentially no amount of therapy, like no amount of goodwill on the part of the employer can make up for that. And you see that, I think, in the fact that like for a lot of people, it's a good market, right, to get a new job. But I do think like this is something we talk about. It's really a good business strategy to start thinking about how are you going to retain employees who don't burn out and who have better productivity, right? Because oftentimes working less and working in a way that works for the rest of your life, like that is the way that you do really good work, clear work, creative work. And companies that are thinking about that are going to have better retention, are going to have better product. And I think that it's closed-minded when companies don't think about those larger questions.
1: Yeah, and one thing, the pandemic showed, I think, in a very painfully clear way, is that our whole conception of essential workers is very blinkered, and so many of the benefits of remote work flow to privileged knowledge workers. And I certainly worry about the rest of the labor force being excluded from this, and in that sense, just deepening an already deep class divide even further.
2: Yeah, I I mean, I think that, like, it's not even equitable in knowledge work, there's going to be a number of people who, you know, have a lot of labor capital because they're, you know, highly sought after developers and they can shop around at every different tech company for the absolute, you know, not best even salary, but best perk and just squeeze everything out of it that they want and need and get to work remotely that way. And then there's going to be more clerical knowledge workers at small companies that reluctantly offer it remote work as a perk, and then they get employee monitoring software that, you know, tracks their every click and their lives become, you know, like they're chained to their computers all day and can't leave. So, I mean, it's not even going to be equitable there. I think it's certainly a problem in that way. And it's kind of why we wanted to do some of the focus on the community element of this, because it's like, if you do get that privilege Of flexibility? Like, what are some ways that, you know, it can be used to better your community to sort of reflect some of that back a little bit? And I think, as we've seen, and as we kind of believe, it creates some of that solidarity between workers when you're out and you're spending that time in the community and and you're giving more of yourself back because you don't see yourself as, you know, just a knowledge worker. You have sort of more of a three-dimensional view of your life.
0: I mean, I think about a lot of the things that I've actually written for Vox in terms of like, oh, why is the childcare system so broken or why is elder care so broken and why Have we not had the might, right, the collective will to change these fundamentally broken systems? And one of the answers that I get from people who work in these spaces is that the people who work in these spaces are so exhausted by the time that they're done with them, right, by the time that their kids age into, like, a later age or by the time that their parents die, that there's nothing left to advocate, right? And there's certainly no energy to advocate while they're actually doing the work. And so I think about this in terms of people who work all the time. Right? Or they work all the time and then squeeze in some parenting and they feel like there is nothing left of themselves. There is very little will to advocate for others when that is the case.
1: I think Anne and I talked about this in our conversation that we did about burnout culture. And I think it's safe to say that all three of us here are, how should I put this, critics of capitalism or critics of a certain species of capitalism, maybe to be more precise, and the way of life it promotes. And in this book, you know, you write that the remote work revolution, if that's the right word, exactly, can't fix the rot at the core of modern capitalism. And you may have answered this already, but I'll ask anyway, you know, what is the rot here that you have in mind and why can't this shift that we're undergoing fix it? This is probably, (laughs) (laughs) well, I mean, the rot at
0: the core of capitalism is the always growth all the time mindset, right? That it's not okay (laughs) to have a sustainable business model that you always have to be accelerating, right? You always have to have more growth. Like the other day, someone was asking me about the decline of Peloton, right? They were like, the stock price just plummeted because their growth has gone down. And I'm like, there's still... Plenty of people buying Pelotons, right? It's just not at the same clip as it was during the pandemic when people couldn't go to gyms. And somehow that becomes framed as, especially within like stock market discourse, as failure, right, as decline instead of, oh, sustainable business model, (laughs) right? And I I don't know how to deprogram us from that thinking, that we always have to be accelerating in that capacity.
2: And it becomes more than just like an economic framework. It it becomes like a value model, right? Like I I look in, I guess, my day job, you know, I I write about all like the bad internet. (laughs) And when you look at a company like Facebook and the idea of growth at all costs, being a universal good, connecting as many people as possible, there's no plan for it, right? The plan is number goes up. The plan is, you know, hockey stick graph the plan isn't like logistical. Like what do we do when we get those, you know, 800 million users in India? The value of growth, the fact that you did it is the thing that becomes valuable. And I think like the most interesting thing to me and telling thing is Facebook has been through the absolute worst PR (laughs) cycle of its life over the past, like demonstrable, proof from inside the company of ways in which the platform is harming people across the world and causing in some places like civilizational collapse kind of stuff. And then Facebook announced like, hey, we're expanding into the metaverse. We're going to try to, you know, basically colonize a new branch of the internet. And the stock price goes up because like, that's what the value is. The value has nothing to do with morality or anything like that or sustainability or or whether or not this is the thing that brings people any modicum of joy or you know, social utility or good. It's legitimately like, how far do your tentacles reach across the globe? And at what pressure do they squeeze? And that is what is valued. So that's the rod.
0: <laughs> oh, and I understand why people become obsessed with it, with making more money in their own lives at whatever cost. Because when you do not have social safety nets either from the government or from your community, in part because you have been so (laughs) eagle-eyed on, like, always getting more money, then you need more money in order to survive in old age, in disability, in in infirm. Like, (laughs) we've eviscerated the social safety nets, which mean that people have to work harder in order to protect themselves, which means that they're less likely to restore the safety nets that would allow people to work less, right? It's a vicious cycle.
1: Yeah, as much as I want to keep taking the sledgehammer to neoliberalism here, I'm gonna I'm gonna back away. I'm gonna back <laughs> hey, away I didn't slowly. say neoliberalism. I didn't. I know say I did it. it. I did you, it. You I'm just... the one. If you had that on your bingo card, <laughs> listeners, you can, you win. I did want to ask a completely different question, which kind of gets at this whole conversation at a very different level, but I think it's an important level and something that you know, we'll be a part of this conversation moving forward. And that is the impact of remote working on our personal lives, particularly our relationships, right? I mean, it's a big shift to, you know, our everyday life in the home. And like you two, my partner and I have both been working from home for a few years now, and it's been great in some ways and very challenging, In other ways, we have driven each other nuts on occasion. And while I think the benefits still outweigh the cost, I I do think it's something that people need to be very intentional about or it can create problems. And this is a really long way of me just asking, how has this been for you two in terms of just your everyday life together, both working from home, I guess, swapping couches or rooms or (laughs) whatever the arrangement is?
2: You used the word that I think is, I mean, it's probably the most repeated word in the book for us, which is intentional and intentionality, right? (laughs) It's very easy when writing a book like this to get sucked into like self help territory or like prescriptive stuff. Like, here are the five ways to make remote work work, you know? And it's like, that's not right because I think people always want like this silver bullet, right? Or this idea that like you work from home now and everything is great. It's like, No, it's really hard. You have to be incredibly intentional. Like I figure out how to balance my day and then two weeks later, forget how to do it again and have to, you know, go back to square one. And that's the same with work life balance in general. Like there are weeks when I get it right or days when I get it right. And there are days when I let it completely take over my life. And it's like, I should be the last person you listen to for advice on that. And I think it's the same with our relationship as two people who work from the same house. There are times when we, you know, really schedule and segment our days in the right way and we're playing off each other's schedules and helping each other through that and splitting labor. And then there are times when I specifically (laughs) let it take over my life and a lot of labor falls to Annie and it's not equitable at all and we have to deal with that. I think that's like the the general thing with this entire book. It, the two things I compare it to are therapy and working out, which is like there's no day when like your therapist tells you like, you're done. That's it. You figured out your mental health. See you later. Do whatever you want and it's going to be great. Or there's no day when you're like, hey, you're fit and you will continue to be that way for the rest of your life. It's like it's constant maintenance. It's constant intentionality and it's developing sustainable routines that work. And if you have to deal with, you know, another party, like someone you're working with in your house, it's like communication all the time and being honest and vulnerable.
0: Yeah. And I'd also say that it's just really hard to unlearn that idea that like working more is better work. It's just really hard, especially with anyone, you know, this is kind of Building on my previous work on burnout, anyone who has internalized the idea that their value is really tied to their work and also that the only way to survive or find stability is to work all the time. So that is a continual unlearning process. And I think the the comparison to therapy is really apt there. And the thing with fitness is that like you have to also untangle the idea that you are always trying to optimize, right? That you're trying to like squeeze the most things in your to-do list onto your day, Like the most helpful thing for flexible work is figuring out times of day when you are doing nothing, right? How do you, if you are working flexibly, if you are working from home, how do you ensure that you actually have a lunch hour? For some people, this is very straightforward because their brains aren't broken. And for some people, (laughs) this is incredibly difficult to learn how to do that. And I struggle with it all the time. It is constant work, but it is better. Right. It is just better.
2: Yeah. Good athletes will say that, like, the rest day is a workout, right? Or the recovery is a workout that is just as important as the all out crushing workout that you have to do that, you know, increases your heart rate or whatever. And it's so similar with work. Like, the day off is leading to better work, it's leading to better thinking, it's leading to better communication, whatever it is. And that's not taught anywhere.
1: No, intention is a great word for it. discipline. Maybe is another, I mean, it requires demands, real effort to draw these boundaries and commit to these routines. And you have to stick to it. You know, you have to honor it because you will lose control if you don't. And, and those lines will blur into non-existence.
0: And understanding too, that you are pushing against the ideological tide, right? Yeah. You know, even sometimes like when we've talked to our parents, remember a couple months ago, like Charlie was talking about taking some time and his parents were kind of like, oh, well, isn't that not great for your work? Shouldn't you be dedicating a little bit more time to work right now? Even parents who really authentically want the best for us also have internalized this this work ethic that you know, passed down to us in different ways. But So it's it's a lot to unlearn. I would say
2: because of... <laughs> are sort of like being ambassadors for remote work and such that sometimes I don't want to be working from home. Like, you know, Annie and I have different personalities and, and mine is just naturally a little bit more extroverted. And there are times when I get lonely or bored or actually really find having a conversation with someone face-to-face is generative. I'm not saying that there's some, like, water cooler magic and that's, like, why I'm good at my job, right? Like, I think that that's super overblown. But I also think that, like, there is a kind of stimulation that you can get there or, like, a value. Anytime I have worked for a company and not on my own and been working remotely, I try to make an effort to go to, like, the headquarters, you know, quarterly or something like that. Because for me, personally, it's a way that I feel connected, feel generative, feel assured that I'm doing a a good job. And so I would say that like, I think it's okay if you find yourself working from home and it's not a silver bullet. It's not, you know, solving every problem for you, or you feel like you need something more sometimes like that's okay. Cause everyone, everyone works differently. And that I think is a big point of all of this, which is just like, we, we created a way of doing things that is basically arbitrary, but we treat it like it's been handed down from the mountain on these stone tablets. And we can rethink all of that and build things that work for different people because everyone is different.
1: Yeah, I think that's a nice segue to the the last thing I wanted to ask. And there's a quote in the book, and I I have it here. It's by uh, Scott Birkin. And he wrote, books about the future of work make the same mistake. They fail to look back at the history of work, or more precisely, the history of books about the future of work and how wrong they were. As soon as I read that, I knew I wanted to ask, you two, when we look back at this period of work, a period pregnant with all this potential for change, what's the biggest thing you think we might have overlooked or underestimated?
2: The dark one is that we underestimated the authority of companies and bosses who just put their foot down and say like, No, (laughs) sorry. I know you like that, but this isn't a democracy. This is a dictatorship. Come back to the office. And that's that. Like, I think that's the dark way that that could go. I think in general, we like to just, media does this all the time, but like turn everything into this binary, right? Like, we're all going to be, we're all going to be working from home. What's an office? Like, you're not going to have one versus, you know, we're all going back to the office. And like, the reality is it might be hard to see the change. As seismic. But I actually think that even if it's really small, even if it's incremental, I think the seeds have been planted. And like, maybe it'll take a really long time for them to germinate. But again, just looking at things like Gen Z is just not having it, man. Like They come come into offices and just there's naturally a culturally like a more outspoken nature. And I think things like that, you know, over time are just going to be really interesting to track. But we like to force stuff into binaries and say, you know, this is the way it's going to be when I think it'll it'll be way more nuanced.
0: So something that I think that there actually has been a fair amount of writing about But there hasn't been a ton of attention to or, uh, you know, enough hand-waving, the ship is going down attention. I think we're taking a real step back in terms of gender equity in the workplace. I think that you're going to see seismic changes if we look back at the data in terms of women dropping out of the workforce en masse. Some of that has to do with workplace policies, but so much of it has to do with our abject refusal to solve the child care crisis in this country. And so that, to me, points to the fact that, like, all of this is interlocking. Like, you cannot just think, oh, if we just make better, flexible work plans, this is going to fix a lot. This is going to be better for women in the workforce. Not if we don't have child care options, right?
1: Yeah, well... One of the things I appreciate about this book is that it doesn't declare that this is the road we're going to go down. It just simply says, these are the roads we could go down and here's why. And I think that's the right you know, tone to take in a book like this. And I really enjoyed reading it. And it's great to talk to both of you. It's so uh, well, and you're already part of the Vox Conversations family. Our audience knows you, but welcome aboard, Charlie. And this is great fun. So thank you both for being here. And everybody should go out and get the book. Go get it. Go read it. It's great. And this is great. Thank you both so much.
0: This was such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us.
1: You can hear more of Vox's Future of Work series in episodes of Today Explained, The Weeds, and Rico Daily, wherever you get your podcast. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska paul robert mouncey mixed and mastered this episode our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious breakmaster cylinder and amber hall is the deputy editorial director of vox talk and thanks to victoria dominguez the vox audio fellow for her help on this episode if you like the show let us know room for improvement we want to hear that too we're curious to know what you think what you want more of and what we could improve And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends and please rate and review. And join us on Thursday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations.